Welcome to Beer Me. I am your host, Sarah Jane. Every week, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world. From brewers, importers, educators, this will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited to welcome on the show Jeff O'Neill. He is the founder, proprietor of uh, Industrial Arts Brewing Company in the Hudson Valley. Um, And this is a brewery that is inside the Gardner Arts Institute Center in Rockland County, New York. It's a stunning location, and Jeff has a habit of brewing really, really thoughtful, very, very clean, and very beautiful beers, and also just somebody that I generally have respected for years. So Jeff, thank you so much for taking time and, and coming on the show. Oh, of course. Thank you for the kind words. It's a pleasure to be here. So we could talk about a million things, but I want, if you could, just kind of kick us off with like a little bit of synopsis for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your brewery and what you do, um, just to kind of give them an idea of where you're coming from. Yeah, you bet. We are Industrial Arts Brewing Company, and we uh, we just celebrated our fifth anniversary this past summer. We launched in uh, summer of 2016, and uh, to your point, uh, that you mentioned earlier, we we focus on making really clean, expressive, mostly hop-forward beers. But we also have a number of little side programs, including promotion of New York State agriculture through a series of lagers that we brew. Um, and we 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 do. We try to be thoughtful about what we do and um, how what we do affects the 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 greater world. And we've grown we've grown up really quickly. Uh, and during the uh, Last couple of years, we've been working on um, building a second facility, uh, which is in Beacon, New York. We just brought that online in the second half of last year, and we're in the process of growing into it. It's a big scale up for us uh, into a a facility with a lot of tech and a lot of um, know-how, and we are focused on you know, expanding this goal of making ever ever cleaner, ever fresher, ever, uh, ever more drinkable beers. Nice. Well, I'm excited to check out uh, the new location in Beacon for sure next time I'm in the Hudson Valley, which is never enough, never enough times. So you had mentioned and kind of, I kind of want to take us through a little bit of, you know, grain to the beer journey that you go on. And you had mentioned your work with uh, New York State Agriculture and really focusing on highlighting that and being very, very thoughtful about every ingredient that does go into your beer. So can we talk about your malts for a little bit? Myself and our director of brewing operations, Mike McManus, had a history before we joined forces here of being involved at that agricultural level uh, when I was at Ithaca Beer 10 to 20 years ago. Um, we were the first brewery in, in many, many years to make, to make a beer with New York State grown hops. Um, and almost simultaneously, or maybe shortly thereafter, I'll take credit for being the first, um, Omegang, Brewery Omegang, where, where Mike was before he came here, um, sort of reimagined part of their site as a hop garden. Location had been a farm uh, 100 years ago, hop farm 100 years ago. And they put in a little hop yard and they started using really hyper, hyper local ingredients, you know, which not every brewery is able to grow, grow or has the, has the rights site to grow uh, grow their own ingredients. Um, Omegang is lucky enough to have that, that great big farm space. 
but it was a priority for us from the beginning to help to help to support and sort of build that alliance with uh, with New York State farmers. And as we were opening, as I say, six years as we were gearing up to open six years ago, um, little did we know um, there were five or ten or maybe even twenty other no less ambitious projects going on in the Hudson Valley, uh, including breweries, malt houses, um, a couple of farms, a couple of hop farms rather, uh, and for sure some um, longtime family farmers who were interested in seeing if they could keep their ingredients more local and pivot into brewing ingredients like malting quality barley, um, there's been a sort of parallel movement toward farm distilling here in the Hudson Valley. So there's this real, I want to say cooperative, but it's, it's almost like complementary is maybe a better word. So again, little did we know, but it makes sense now looking backwards that uh, there's been a movement uh, toward the Hudson Valley out of the city for a decade. And it's, uh, as you mentioned in our little chat before the show, like it's such a special place. There's great old farmland on the west side of the river and um, easy access to river towns on the east side of the river. So there's this real neat uh, synergy that happens. And, you know, a decade or 15 years ago, there was not, it, it was a challenge uh, because the suppliers were not as mature, not as sophisticated, and were not necessarily always bringing the best ingredient to market. Since then, we've seen some uh, you know, capital investments happen on that supply side, which is really was the missing the missing link um, for people to be able to malt their barley and, and hop growers to be able to kiln their hops and deliver to us uh, uh, an ingredient that we know we can make into a great beer. So, what is the benefit of using malt that is grown locally? Well, for sure, it reduces the carbon footprint right away. I mean, so much of the world's uh, brewing ingredients are ultimately commodities. Most of the malting quality barley is grown in the grain belt that runs, you know, around the whole earth, uh, roughly at the U.S.-Canadian border and, you know, through northern Europe, China. And then there's another uh, parallel one in the southern hemisphere. But not every brewery is anywhere near that supply. Most of the hops in the U.S. are grown just in those three states in the in the Northwest. Um, of course, there has been a movement toward significant amounts of, of well, not insignificant amounts of growth in uh, states like Michigan, New York. I think Michigan and New York are probably four and five now. But again, a brewery in Florida or Texas is nowhere near any kind of traditional brewing ingredient farm. And you see it happen at the hyper-local level, like you'll see, a, a again, a brewery that has the right kind of site can, I don't know, keep bees or or grow some herbs that they use in a some, some specialty beer, something that gives them that sense of place uh, in their product. So anyway, there's a million ways that connecting a product to a place and time and a movement are uh, powerful. Um, I think it speaks to the, 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 pr the producer of the ingredients and then the brewer and then the consumer to all be interested in keeping that, that local economy perpetuated. So, you know, from a, an environmental level, it is beneficial from a, you know, telling a story from a, from a sales perspective, from a guest experience perspective, it's great. Um, but, you know, I've, yeah, yeah. I've got a phrase that I say a lot, which is just because it's local doesn't mean it's better. That's right? absolutely true. 
when Mike and I started, you know, really riffing on this five years ago, the ingredients weren't where they are today even. And I say this with all due respect to the suppliers. It's, if there's a lot of trial and error that, that any, um, any supplier goes through to, to, to bring a great product to market. We had initially, and again, Mike came from Oma Gang, uh, we had initially envisioned this series of beers as more like farmhouse-style beer, saisons, um, more fermentation-driven, more yeast, more yeast-forward, to maybe cloak some of those uh, imperfections that we that we assumed at the time were part of the supply chain. And you know, I think we had both had, for sure. I have can think right off the top of my head of a couple of instances of having bought. Uh, New York in grown ingredient, um, being really excited about it, paying uh, a premium, and then getting it into the brewery and evaluating it and questioning it. Where does the, and I'm, and I'm curious, where, like, can you give me an example of like what flaws were prevalent? You know, like, is it, was it coming, was it, was it in the, was it in the, you know, structure itself or was it in the taste or? Well, specifically, we brought in some malt once into, uh, uh, not here, but in another place that I worked, um, that was was really smoky, and it was not meant to be a smoked malt. Another time, we brought in some hop flowers from uh, a startup hop farmer that were not fully dried and had started to uh, compost (laughs) inside of the package. Um, and again, I want to like, it's part of the process is trial and error. And part of the, we want, as a supplier, we know ourselves, we know how important that feedback loop is for, to, to, uh, to know when a customer is not fully satisfied and make sure we take that example, learn from it and not make, not make that mistake again. Um, so I think that's been part of the process. Bigger picture is the alliance between brewers as a group, whether it's through the State Brewers Guild or the Brewers Association. That relationship has, has become more, I think we, we have more visibility into what they're doing. They, the, the, these suppliers know what, what a brewer is looking for. Uh, information sharing is a huge part of this industry as a whole. Um, the resources that are now available to everyone on, on the internet are, are, are exponentially greater than they were 10 years ago. So uh, it's a process and, you know, I'll, I'll be the first to say when I was a, when I was a younger brewer, I didn't have a lot of patience for um, an ingredient that wasn't up to my standard. And it's a learn it's a real learning process on how to manage, how to manage business relationships. And, you know, a lot of the struggle, from the brewer side, I mean, brewers are typically not um, trying to spend extra money. Uh, is is that to operate at a small scale like these startup farmers almost necessarily had to do? They have to charge a really premium price. And like I tell, I say this with a straight face to anybody: like we get the best hops in the world for like ten or twelve bucks a pound. We get great malt for fifty cents a pound. And, you know, no New York farmer has ever been able to meet either of those prices on, on any of their ingredients. So it's ultimately the price is passed on to the consumer. And if they don't have a great experience with the product, that loop stops, is left, that loop is left open. 
I mean, you've got these, the, you know, if you've got a startup local maltster or something like that, they're going up against, you know, malt companies in Germany that have been doing this for. Oh, they're going up against, they're going up against Cargill and Archer Daniel, Daniels Midland. Like it's, it's David and, it's David and Goliath. And like, frankly, we're going up against, you know, ABI and Miller Coors. There's an analogy there. But I, I think I think your point, which was perfect, was feedback is key for everything. And I think making sure that you're giving that feedback to the supplier so that they can improve, you know, honest, constructive feedback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, there was a, about a decade ago, there was a well, well-covered news story about hop shortage. And the hop crop, global hop crop was significantly short and prices prices jumped. Um, And there's all these real romantic historical tales of upstate New York having been the hop growing capital of America in the in the late 1800s and into the into the 20th century. But those romantic uh, accounts of that time fail to recognize that there are real reasons why the hop industry moved away. Um, and, you know, the Western U.S. wasn't settled in the late, 18, late 1800s. And it turns out that the Pacific Northwest is ideal, is ideal to hop farming. I, I think the point I was trying to make is this was in the news and a lot of people drew this line between, oh, well, there's a hop shortage and I have a field, so I should grow hops. And it's, there's so much more to it than that. And, and uh, till you really dig into it and know that you need really expensive uh, harvesting equipment that you're only going to use for a couple of weeks a year, endless amounts of cold storage. You can't really know what you're getting into until you get into it. And thankfully, a lot of these suppliers got into it and had had to learn this. So the ultimate point I was trying to make earlier is we had assumed that the, the ingredients would be more challenging to work with. And, and then all of a sudden, there was this cottage industry of maltsters. We were really worried mostly about malt, especially because we were thinking about farmhouse-style beers, which are maybe, maybe a little bit less hoppy than beer that we typically brew here. Um, and then all of a sudden, we started to see some higher-quality malt at trade shows or uh, you know, sales calls. People would show up and say, hey, let's take a look. Let's steep this. Let's... And again, these suppliers learned how to present to a brewer that utility, like that, that, that we can use them. There was a, a sort of a watershed moment a few years ago at a conference when a number of brewers were in a room and they got introduced to the standard malt steeping technique for the first time. And you know, a lot, frankly, a lot of, <laughs> I guess I should be fair to the growers, like frankly, a lot of brewers don't know what the heck they're doing until they're in it for a while myself included. Um, and the, uh, it, seeing a couple hundred people um, experience a standardized thing all at once was really eye-opening. I mean, I think many of them had not considered that that was happening at the supplier level. A uh, maltster came, we steeped some of the malts, they were really pleasant, we compared it to what we were using, um, and there was, it was a comp. Yeah. And listeners, for those who don't know, the steeping, it's, it's, it is exactly as it sounds. It's, it's making a malt tea, essentially. That's exactly right. And we do, sometimes we do the same thing with, with hop pellets. Sometimes we uh, just try to treat them different ways, different temperatures. That, that's maybe more process oriented. But oh, I was going to say, oh, yeah, uh, 
we also sort of simultaneously, maybe as an industry, maybe as a smaller faction within the industry, got really finally excited. And maybe it's because people started to be willing to spend a little bit of money on them about brewing, about brewing lagers. And, uh, you know, lagers have just been sort of beer for a long time in American culture that's been dominated by IPA. IPA is really important to what we do, so I'm certainly not meaning to dismiss the validity of American IPA. And the, but there's some real point of differentiation that you can make with a high-quality malt in a lager. Like, you can really play up that, that character. Um, and since we knew we were not trying to make necessarily very hoppy beers, maybe you just need some bitterness to balance the, the maltiness in some of these styles of beer, we decided instead to lean into lagers for our farm beers. We make f- at least four of them per year, and we call them the landscape series. I don't know if I said that yet. And it's, it's spring now, so we do spring, summer, autumn, and winter landscape. And they roughly cycle through historical um, styles that were, are appropriate for the season, like the spring version that we have out now is is a is a not quite a Maybach, but a but a Bach, a German style Bach beer, and in the sum in the summer we do a, a more classic American lager that has uh, corn in it. In the autumn we typically do an amber, uh, whether it's an, a fest beer or a, like a rye lager, it usually has that rustic coloring. And then in the winter we do a typically do a darker one, um, and we've done a Schwartz beer and a Baltic porter, and we try to. I mean, be seasonally appropriate with them. And then the really kind of cool thing, and I think this, this is something that I'm particularly proud of, is that in that same spirit of that local economy and that place and time and how important it is all the way down to the, to the, to the drinker to, to feel good about the whole, frankly, transaction, we, we donate all of the profit from these beers to a Hudson Valley-based um, environmental, agricultural, or social uh, concerns. So we've been able to make this our, you know, it's a, a loss leader, um, but it's our, our philanthropic sort of arm. And we give out four grants a year of typically around $10,000 from from these beers. Um, and we just started, and I don't know um, if any anyone uh, local, if any local not-for-profits are listening, but in the last couple of cycles, we've been way more methodical about choosing choosing our partners, and we have an application process. And we just had a review uh, the other morning of our summer of our summer landscape beneficiaries. And I don't know if we've sent out the uh, congratulations email yet, so I don't want to say who it is. And that's wonderful. And and I think you know definitely putting the spotlight on New York agriculture and supporting your community, and you know trying to reduce your carbon footprint. Um, a little bit of a subject change here, but you also are, you also prioritize water usage and, and how to conserve that as best you can, correct? Yeah, yeah, we do. And in fact, um, I think this was initially maybe the topic you wanted to talk about. Initially, we were going to talk about water, but I really love this conversation about malt. So this is totally awesome. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, great. Um, I, I also, I don't want to forget hops. We do use New Yorker on hops here, um, and they are an important part of these beers. Uh, but the, the, the malt the, the local malt was really the missing link uh, because we operated a fairly large scale for a 
small brewery, you know, there are, are a number of much small, there, there are a couple hundred bigger breweries than us, but many thousand smaller breweries than us. Um, and at that small, really local level, you might only need a few hundred pounds of, of malt to make to make a batch of beer. To make it make it viable for us, we, we have to make about a hundred barrels. So so we need uh, like five, six thousand pounds of of New York malt to make it to make a tank of beer. And that was like the batch size of most small malt malsters is significantly smaller than that. Um, so it really took until till those guys showed up. Uh, I'm getting off track again. The question here was more about water. We invested out front in very high-tech uh, brewing equipment for a small brewer. I think as I've gained more perspective, I think of us as a, a small brewer that uses a lot of big brewery tools. Um, seen, you know, our, our team is really experienced and we've seen a little bit of everything and we, we tend to know at least what doesn't work, um, if not what works. And early, we adopted technology, hardware, software, um, right out of the gate. And we commissioned, we commissioned a, uh, a highly automated and efficient German brew house uh, before we even had a site, actually. Um, I knew there were some, well, we, add, we added a few features onto it, sort of a la carte, um, that helped conserve energy. Uh, and, and I maybe wasn't quite so interested in uh, maybe I, I was not as conscious about water usage as I should have been, although I was not uh, oblivious to it. But the engineering from this part of the world, uh, Europe, and, and I think specifically Germans are, are famous for engineering. I think they've they've they woke up a little bit sooner than us to climate crisis, but uh, they're ahead of us on this on this uh, this movement, this green green movement. And the system is built to recapture heat from boiling and store that in, so store it in water. But one of the really neat things that I didn't, that I underestimated for sure, is that most, you know, in, in the brew house, once you're done boiling, your job now is to cool it down to fermentation temperature. That is water intensive. You use a lot of water to exchange heat. They size the vessels, obviously, in the really intentional way such that we 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 recapture like that processed water comes in to 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 cool and we have a couple of different points where we where we cool work down um more more than most more than most breweries do and all of that water coming in gets conserved in a big holding tank uh for use then later as either an ingredient or hot water to clean with or whatever and we spill almost nothing yeah which is really like that's the name of the game is just don't waste just waste not want not right so i've been in plenty of breweries uh in my career where the second half of the day you're running water just straight to the drain because you don't have a way to store it you didn't think about this you grew too fast you maybe don't care water's not ex again it's not expensive enough and not quite by accident, but for sure now looking at our, our consumption versus the field, um, we're not as efficient as Anheuser-Busch, which is probably, the, they're probably the, well, certainly the biggest user. Well, they might not be the biggest user. They're the biggest scale brewer in the world, um, but they also are the most efficient with this. And 
at that scale, it's, it's really a serious millions, millions of dollars of savings. Like they're, they're like, uh, if I recall correctly, and please don't anyone quote me on this, they use like maybe about three uh, gallons of water for every gallon of beer they produce, which is kind of, kind of shocking when you think about it, like that it takes three to make one. The craft brewing industry, again, please don't quote me, I didn't validate these numbers. The craft brewing industry in general, I think is in the seven to eight range. There's been an awakening about this. I think people are more conscious of it. Um, certainly there are a lot of brewers in regions that are desperate for water. We run under four. So that's a point of pride for us. But I, I even think like just from like, and I'm, I'm thinking from like uh, helping people kind of like scale this down to like a real life experience. Like if you do any kind of home brewing or if you have a super small like pilot system or like whatever, like this isn't just the water that's, you know, for the recipe. This is also like sure. the comical oh, amount cleaning of cleaning funny. that is required for brewing. <laughs> it's like. Cleaning well, is serious <laughs> business. There's nothing funny that's about it. That's very true. <laughs> I know. I, was, I I have like a really uh, it's, it's not a very nice comment, but like anytime someone anytime somebody who you know you meet those people I've been in the hospitality industry for a while you meet those people who are you know happen to be good at cooking or happen to be good at dining out at restaurants and they're like I'm gonna open a restaurant because I'm a foodie you know and you're like cool you have no business doing that so occasionally I meet people who are like well I want to be a brewer and they have no business being a brewer and not that I like to discourage people but I like to say you want to be a brewer how do you feel about watching things boil and cleaning? Because that is a lot of your life. It is not quite as sexy and glamorous as you think it is. <laughs> yeah, that's most of you know most of what we do. Jeff, unfortunately, we uh, are here at time. Oh gosh! But thank you so much for taking the time and you know have such rich content here. Um, oh, we just barely scratched the surface. I know. We're going to have to have you back on. We're going to have to do like we're going to have to do like session 2 with Jeff O'Neill. Sure. I'd be I'd be glad. <laughs> so, for those of you who have the opportunity, go to the Hudson Valley and check out uh, Industrial Arts. Definitely uh, make an effort to check out the new location in Beacon or the other location in uh, Garnerville. If you are in that area or if you have it accessible to you, at least buy the beer because oh, it is so much. delicious um, and uh, definitely wonderful. But thank you all for listening. We will catch you next time. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to reach out at Beer Me Radio on Instagram or beermeradio at gmail.com. We are available anywhere you get your podcast. Please like, subscribe, give all the stars. We will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.